Welcome to the Reimagine Mental Health series on Investec Focus Radio SA, brought to you by Investec Life. I'm Katie Katapodis. We live in a world where technology dominates so much of what we do on a daily basis. There is simply no escaping it. Many of us, myself included, are attached to our phones, sometimes 24-7. Eyes glued on social media, on apps. There is also no denying that some social media apps can be extremely toxic, distracting, and of course lead to a whole lot of other issues. So the theme of technology and mental health is so relevant and critically important, especially in today's fast-moving world. In this episode, we unpack how app technologies have the potential to provide flexible and tailored mental health support to individuals, both in a personal capacity and in the workplace. In episode two of this podcast series, we speak to Dr. Janine Ellenberger, Chief Medical Officer, Behaviorance, Pandas Alan Swaden, and Dr. Matthew Proctor from Hanover Re, South Africa. They are some of the top minds in this field. So lovely to have you here to talk about this hugely important issue. I think it's so important that before we get to the real crux of it, let me start with you, Matthew, and we'll go around. Tell us a little bit about Hanover Re and exactly what you're doing in this space. Hanover Re is a global reinsurer. And a reinsurer is basically a company that at its core insures insurance companies like Investec Life. And our core mandate is to enable life insurers to provide financial protection products, which enable people the financial security they need when bad things happen from a health perspective. And one of the those things that we've seen emerging over over many years is the incidence of a rising amount of mental health claims, particularly around depression and anxiety. However, one of the things that we've also realized is that we have an important role to play in the time between someone takes out a policy and the time that a claimable event actually happens. And so we are constantly on the lookout for different technologies and apps, seeing as though we're in this podcast, that will enable us to help people on their journey and help them live a longer and healthier life where they can deal with the stresses that life throws at them. Well, I love the sound of that, leading a happier and healthier life. Janine, let's come to you, Chief Medical Officer of Behavior. Evidence. Why don't you tell us a bit about the technology you're involved in and how it's helping people? With pleasure, Katie. So Behavidence develops machine learning-based tools to detect and assist with the remote monitoring and management of mental health conditions through passive digital biomarkers. We offer multiple digital phenotyping models that can predict disorders such as depression, anxiety, stress, ADHD, and more. And these solutions have been adopted by health organizations, tech, commercial, and government entities as a measurement-based outcome to sort of monitor these mental conditions and predict relapse of conditions and for screening and remote monitoring for interventions and comorbid conditions. The beauty of our solution is that it offers absolute user privacy and zero respondent burden with real-time feedback. That sounds fabulous. I can't wait to unpack it with you even further. Alan Swaden, you're from Panda. Tell us about Panda. Panda is an app that we developed basically during the heart of COVID, where I had just left Akesa Hospitals, where we were treating about 22,000 patients here in our psychiatric hospitals around the country. And I came together with Alon Litz, who had just left Uber. And what we did was we put our heads together and saw this emerging mental health pandemic that could not be met by traditional means. And we decided to try and find a way to bring technology to the core of the problem, which is that how do people find the right mental health care at the right time? And how do you make it accessible to them? And has there been a huge uptake in Panda? 
there's been a huge uptake in Panda. People are much more willing to acknowledge that they have a mental health condition from before COVID to now, where it, it really started to get to the forefront of people's minds, both as employers and as just people trying to live their ordinary lives in extraordinary circumstances. Matthew, let me come back to you. When you hear of such technology, Panda, Behavidence, I mean, this must be music to your ears when it comes to the sector that you're in. As life insurers, we are very good at assessing a person at a point in time and trying to predict what kind of risk they may have and their propensity to potentially lodge a claim. But what we've traditionally been very bad at is the time between someone takes out a policy and the time a claim happens. And this type of technology that insurers need to be able to engage much better with their policyholders. And so instead of just being there when something bad happens and we have to pay a claim, we can actually go along the journey and try and prevent that from happening in the first place. Because COVID threw our world into chaos. Alan, you mentioned it. Janine, you must have experienced this as well. And, you know, you talk about behaviourance predicting disorders. Was there a lot around COVID in particular that was really difficult for you to predict and then to handle in the space? We did a very interesting sort of pilot with a population group in India. And we compared the pilot during a COVID wave. I think it was the second and third wave. We compared them during the second wave in between the wave and the third wave of COVID. And we saw a marked spike increase in depression and anxiety in the second wave. It sort of dipped throughout the break between the second and third. And then as it hit the third wave again, it spiked again. And then it actually stayed up after that. It didn't drop. So these insights were very interesting to us, absolutely. That's the reality of mental health issues. We can't put a bandage on it. It's not visible. It's not necessarily tangible. So I think that becomes a huge factor in the space. But legitimately, as a genuine question, do you see an effect of external factors, the state of our country, the state of our politics, the state of the economy, unemployment, health issues? That surely has an absolute impact on how people are rating themselves on a daily basis. For sure. I mean, one needs to think about mental health from a biological, a psychological and a social perspective. And so there are some, you know, genetic markers perhaps that one can find. But again, there's a nature nurture debate about it. If you've been brought up in a family with a depressed mom, you know, you might be depressed because of the nurturing that you got as opposed to it being something that's genetically handed down because it's impossible to measure. Then there's the psychology of it. Have you been through an early childhood trauma? What's your developmental process been like? And then there's the social factors which impact on us every single day. We have to get our heads around this. And I imagine you need to get people to really get their heads around the data, diagnosing them, as you say, the AI, so to speak, as opposed to the human being who's sitting in front of them, who's checking their pulse, their temperature and doing all of those other diagnostics. So I think it will involve a lot of education, Janine. Do you agree that that's necessary in the space? It's, I think it's necessary globally, honestly. Every time I tell somebody what we're doing, they go, oh, I'm not using that app because you're spying on me. And I'm saying, listen, you allow Facebook to access your information. You allow Instagram. They, they look at a whole lot more things. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the technology that we're, we're sort of working with right now, we came to this idea because my co-founder used to work at Facebook. And he said, Facebook knows you better than you know yourself. And it's actually true. And our concept was actually built on this concept of lookalike audience. What we do really is we are, we are slaves to the data. So we take, you know, a thousand people with depression and we do this globally. And we said, we want to find the similarity in all these people. And if you look at somebody with a depression, 
While the causes might vary for depression around the world, the physiological and symptomatic similarities are there. It affects their sleeping, affects their enjoyment of things. But that you don't necessarily see on an app. But what you do see on an app is someone with depression maybe is off their phones a lot during the day and is awake a lot at night. And they don't spend a lot of time on active apps. They spend a lot of time on passive apps and they watch a lot of movies and they do a lot of e-commerce shopping. So you gather these insights, which we would never have access to. You know, a lot of data tells you a lot. Matthew, in terms of the dispensation of medication, do you think that technology can fit in here? And how does it fit in and work when it comes to actually dispensing meds for somebody who's got a mental health issue? I think I must probably qualify this by saying that at this point, I've been out of clinical medicine for the better part of eight years. But one of the requirements for me to do my job as a doctor in insurance is to constantly be in touch and be engaged with clinicians that are in the field. So I can give an outside perspective on that. And I think that it's to to what Janine said about the, the role of apps and technology. They're not diagnostic tools. So apps, I think, form a, will be one of the components that enable monitoring of people. And that monitoring will allow doctors to see if things are going wrong, things are going right. And that then can decide, will help a doctor to decide, yes, this medication is working for someone. No, we need to try something else. I don't know if the, the apps themselves, um, the apps are not an end to themselves. I think they part of the tools of what we need to treat people for their mental health. And obviously, medication is only just but one of the components of that treatment. You've developed a mental health calculator. Many are calling it a new paradigm for underwriting and treating mental health issues specifically. What can you expect to learn from this calculator? So I think, let me clarify, it's a mental health calculator that we use to assess people's risk when they take out a life insurance policy. And the reason that we actually had to develop that calculator and we did it uh, through collaboration with our office in Australia was that there was an immense amount of unhappiness in the public um, who were taking out insurance policies. And at the single sound of someone having seen a life coach, seen a psychologist, had an episode five years ago where they were depressed for a month because they were going through a divorce, life insurance companies were coming down quite hard and saying, well, you know, you've taken out this disability benefit and now we need to exclude mental health, which clearly is not a fair way of approaching it. But I think it goes back to the fact that we generally didn't have any kind of a biomarker to assess how severe or, or how bad someone's problem was. So the Australian office developed a calculator and as a South African office, we saw potential for it to be used here. And so we've South Africanized this calculator to assess people in a much more fair and objective way when they take out their life insurance policy, almost like a underwriting biomarker, if you will, to assess them at that point in time. Investec Life use an automated underwriting system and we will incorporate the questions that go into this mental health calculator, into that assessment that when someone is online, taking out a policy, they will get those questions and they will get that objective, standardized assessment that, that everyone will get. So what we will then be able to do is take those underwriting results relating to someone who's disclosed that they have depression and link it back down the line to the claims data we see. And we'll be able to see how accurate or how inaccurate we were in how that assessment played out and obviously then make adjustments as well. So it's going to take a while for that kind of data to come through. But, you know, you have to start somewhere. But it's extremely detailed. Do you think that you are changing the face of underwriting and of insurance in South Africa at the moment? From a mental health perspective, being able to have a 
calculated approach to the mental health risk assessment of someone is not new in the industry. What happens typically is that you will have an underwriter sitting at an insurance company and they will get an application that was completed by an applicant. And there's a questionnaire that the applicant will then complete as well. And it'll ask them questions about who they're seeing, what meds they're on, what happened, when it happened. And then they'll also get a report from the doctor, which describes kind of what the doctor's seen, what treatment they've prescribed. And a human will then have to kind of put that all together and try and make an assessment. Now, the problem with that is there's a lot of subjective stuff that gets missed, not because we don't think it's important, but because we don't necessarily always know how to incorporate it into an assessment. And so by using a calculated approach where we can incorporate, like Alan mentioned, the biopsychosocial approach. Alan, coming back to you, technology is often synonymous with poor mental well-being, particularly if people are attached too much to technology. Social media apps have been known to be extremely destructive and toxic spaces. How then does your app challenge this view? Look, it's a great question. I mean, I have my own really strong views about technology and how it is all-consuming. And I'm not actually on any social media apps, but my family all are. And I can see how sort of how it you know takes them in and sort of doesn't let go because... Addictive, of, I tell you. It really is. Hey, whether it's the dopamine or whatever it is that's sort of like firing, I think that it's become all-pervasive and I think that it can be very dangerous. And I think especially with kids where the bullying doesn't stop at school, if there's a problem like that, it can go on. And then people just generally, you know, looking at technology and, and social media apps and saying, you know, is my life good enough? And I think that's a problem that just doesn't go away. But technology can also be a huge enabler. It's made so many things so much easier. It's made banking so much easier. It's made sort of playing golf much easier. It's finding your way around traffic. So, you know, it has really good uses. And one of those uses can be, you know, can technology play a role when psychology and psychiatry, people really want that face-to-face contact. But the burden of disease is just too large for us to try and meet the huge need of the mental health need with traditional means. And technology has to play a role. It's not if it can play a role. I think it has to play a role. And it has to play a role in giving people access to basic community support. I just want to say to Alan, you know, and it's so true because research globally has proved that sort of self-awareness and having these improved self-management tools uh, leads to improved health outcomes. The earlier the detection, the earlier the intervention, all of this increases better health outcomes. And to the point of this utilization of more and more apps, there are so many intervention apps that are now available. And I think it's important that, and people use them. I think so, wow, my stress levels are up at 100% continuously for two weeks. Maybe I need to do something about it. And maybe because of stigma, I'm reluctant to reach out to a psychiatrist right now, but perhaps I can try you know, using something like Panda, or I could try a meditation app and see how that benefited me. And then again, seeing that benefit, it's it's there. The, the proof is there that it actually works is so important. Yeah. So I think one of the things that kind of that struck me as we were talking and, and what we also think about quite a lot is if you look at it from a behavioral point of view, one of the problems that we struggle with is as being experts in the field is that we struggle with the cognitive bias of the curse of knowledge, where we inherently assume that people know a lot more about this kind of thing than they actually do. And I think that one of the things that we need to try and solve for is breaking down that barrier where we can get 
GPs at the primary healthcare level and psychologists at the primary healthcare level to accept and adopt these technologies. Because I think one of the problems is that someone might go to their GP with this app and say, well, you know, I think things are going fine. And the GP probably doesn't have any clue what the app is. So how do we get what people perceive as the experts, their GP, their psychologist, to also say that this app is an absolutely necessary tool for me to promote for my patients to use. I think that's something that is very important for us to solve. But you raise such an important point, Matthew. So I'm not sure if Janine and Alan, if you've had this kind of feedback, but once a patient eventually gets to a doctor, have they ever fed back to you or through the app or via the app to say, my doctor was offended or my doctor said, stay off Google. There's nothing, you know, Dr. Google is very bad for you. And these apps are just yet another extension of that without actually acknowledging the research and the data that goes into this. I have to tell you, I put this app out to my alumni group and out of 110, I had two adopters. <laughs> they were all like, I'm not interested in this. This can't do my job for me. But by the same token, we built a model for postpartum depression and we gave it to a perinatal specialist. And she has used it in a cohort of 20 women postpartum between the weeks of six weeks to six months postpartum. And she's blown away by it because she's picked up depression, postpartum depression in women that she's been able to intervene and actually make a huge difference. So the thing about mental health care, like a lot of health care, is that people only get it when there's a problem. They only start to look for it when there's a problem. And what we're trying to do and what an insurance company could do is say, if you want to keep your premiums low, you know, we'd like to see you being more active about your mental health. Now, where do you go and be more active? Does that mean that I need to go see a psychologist once a week for a thousand rand an hour? I mean, you know, how am I going to do that, right? I'd rather just pay an additional premium. But with a free app like Panda, you can go in there and you can engage in communities. You can download content, you can do assessments, and you can really stay engaged. You know, in South Africa, we have about 60 million people. About 15% of people are going to have some kind of mental health issue that they're going to need care for in any given year. That's 9 million people, okay? 70% or 80% of those people are not getting any help. Traditional methods are not going to get us where we need to go in order to take care of the population, help them to be less stressed, less traumatized, and waiting until a big event happens where they have to be hospitalized. And it's so expensive to get them care at that point. So Panda sets out to democratize mental health. And what that really means is two things. It means that we're giving the power of mental health care to the person who needs it. And we're empowering them with a language around what it is that they need, that they can be much more eloquent in describing those needs and getting their needs met. At the same time, we want the system to move from a doctor-centric perspective, where everything revolves around the doctor, to the patient or the person, where everything revolves around that patient or that person. And that is the only way that we're ever going to get care delivered in a way that people find it meaningful for them at that point of care. I love what you have just said. The democratization of mental health is huge because getting this access, particularly to rural communities, underprivileged communities, to mental health generally is just not something that's happened in South Africa. So I think that's a really critical point, Alan, there that you've mentioned, this democratization of mental health via the app then. Yeah. Well, you know, in areas where people are not necessarily sort of, um, what did Matthew say earlier, the, the curse of knowledge. Okay. So we assume that people know when they're depressed and that they can go and say, look, I'm depressed. But in areas where depression is not spoken about, you need to ask different kind of questions. You need to say, do you have, you know, ongoing stomach complaints? Do you have headaches? You know, do you have problems staying asleep or falling asleep? And it's those kind of simple questions that allow you to diagnose and help a person really achieve the things that they want to 
get, which is to live a more functional life. And again, to go back to a point that Matthew said, to live a life that feels worth living. So it's striking me more and more that there are more and more people in urgent and desperate need of an intervention of sorts, of help of sorts, because the 1,000 rand for a psychologist is not a viable option for the majority of South Africans. It's just not viable. So I think you've touched on something really, really important here, Alan. You know, sometimes people are predisposed to depression and they might encounter life events that cause them the depression. And that depression then leads to the overeating, the weight gain, the diseases of lifestyle, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, long-term pain, which then obviously becomes a vicious cycle. Sometimes it's the other way around. Sometimes it's the fact that people get sick and they used to be healthy. And this is now an event that they need to try and recover from. So there's a bi-directional approach, but these things just interact in such a significant way that you can't, you know, you can't help one without the other. Journalism wellness is something that I'm so keen on because journalists are exposed constantly to trauma that's unfolding in front of them. And I'm just listening to all of you speak and I'm thinking this is something that needs to be introduced in newsrooms. This is something that needs to be introduced, I'm sure other professions as well, but purely from a journalistic perspective, that daily check-in, how am I doing? Am I okay? Did that story really affect me and at what level? And Janine, I see you nodding there, but would you encourage that? You know, certain professions are really tapping into these technologies a lot more in order to do that self-check. I was just thinking when Alan was speaking, you know, when you're talking about the democratization of healthcare, part of that is destigmatization. And people who are, or the organizations that are playing a huge role at the moment in destigmatization are the employers. And if you take journalism, if you take, we are currently working with a company that screens the sensitive content of Facebook. A lot of the workers globally will be exposed to this horrible, similar to your story, traumatic footage that they screen off all the social media sites. So they sit in this room all day long looking at this and suffer from extreme PTSD, depression and anxiety. So bringing in, you know, solutions to your employees, enabling them to say they're not doing well, to be able to see that they're not doing well, and then offer them interventions and offer them support, I think is one of the largest places globally where change will take place because the employers are definitely very aware of employee well-being at the moment. And I think with the journalism, 100%, it, it fits into that. Mm, and just acknowledging it's okay not to be okay. Absolutely. And there is help out there and it looks, you know, different and it's got different forms. But I think acknowledging that it really is incredible. I mean, I, I just see a lot of very fascinated faces around me. The other thing I wanted to ask you is, as the mother of a teen and a tween, would you recommend then, between the three of you, that these kind of checks we start doing with our children, we encourage them to start doing this? Because it's that horrible, do I, don't I, do I give them more technology, don't I, do I prevent them? But actually, this might, Janine, be a very positive step in their mental well-being because they've got enormous stresses as well when it, you know, exams, families, whatever it might be. They do. And I am incredibly impressed with the teenage population because I have a number of my daughter and her friends who use our app at the moment. And she'll come to me and she'll say, you know, mom, I've been looking at my scores. And she's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very anxious at the moment. And you know, I've kind of been feeling bad, but I didn't want to say anything. And I push it all back to her because they're smart kids. And said, what is it? What's going on? She goes, well, perhaps I'm overscheduling myself. Yes, but we talk about that all the time. She said, but I really think that it's showing me now that I'm anxious. And I think it's because I'm overscheduling. And it almost validates her feelings. 
And now she feels it's okay to actually say, no, she's not going to go to dog agility training tonight because that's one more thing on her list of things to do that could be let go this week. And she could actually just have an easy evening. So while, and they're not going to get off technology. It doesn't matter what we as an, an older generation think. They are not going to, it's their way of life. It's their form of communication. It's their everything. So for me, it's almost enabling her to be able to have that insight and self-manage. It's all about self-management. So when she sees these scores, she does her own intervention and I can then be supportive of it. Well, I've also, yeah, I mean, I've also got an 18-year-old, a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old. And I'll just, I'll just speak, you know, personally, I, we had a, an incident in September where I got very sick very suddenly and it affected the whole family, especially the kids. And in the beginning, Lucy, my wife and I, you know, try to engage with the kids in that way. And we've t- since taken a step back and decided to let them come to us when they want to talk about it as opposed to us. What we were doing in the beginning was sort of encouraging them, you know, go and talk, go and do all these things to just give them the space. So I think one needs to find a balance. Um, and I think maybe Janine touched on that between sort of giving teenagers, especially who are going through so many things, the space to kind of self-manage and then also trying to notice, you know, is there a change in their behavior that I should be concerned about and then encouraging them to monitor themselves or to go into an app or something like that. That's where I would think about it. I'm loving this discussion. In fact, you've given me so many ideas for future discussions, particularly around the season, children, technology, teenagers, technology, and their mental health being at the core and at the heart of everything that they do. I think it's absolutely critical. Can I interject with one more thing? Do you know what my best part is? My daughter, whose name is Zara, said to me, you know, mom, I find that when I spend a lot of time on TikTok, my scores, my anxiety gets worse. And she said to me, for that point and for that reason, I have deleted TikTok and I'm only restricting myself to Instagram and Snapchat during the school term. So that's where I thought I was like, it was brilliant. This is a breakthrough. It really is. That level of self-awareness is superb. So I don't have kids. I have two dogs. Those are the kids for now. But I think I definitely and, and my group of friends are at the stage where they've got children less than one or between the ages of one and three. So I get anxious thoughts about what it will be like to raise a child in the world today compared to what I experienced growing up. So I think listening to these kinds of stories and knowing that this kind of stuff is out there is extremely positive and encouraging and will lessen the anxiety. So I think that getting this kind of technology to new parents probably also very important and something that should be encouraged. Well, thank you all very much. This has been a very enlightening conversation. I wish us all good and healthy mental health. And I think technologies like this will certainly enable us to get in that direction. And also a reminder that, you know, there are some toxic elements of technology, but really helpful ones at the same time. And this has been a huge eye opener. So I thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for joining me on the second episode of our Reimagine Mental Health series. Brought to you by Investec Life. In our next episode, we'll be discussing the impact of mental health on our economy. So do join us. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye from me, Katie Catapodis, and the Investec Life team. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investec Bank Limited, an authorised financial service provider and registered credit provider. Investec Life Limited is a licensed life insurance company and an authorised financial services provider. T's and C's apply.